John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Father, we are uh, grateful to be together in one another's presence. We are always in your presence if we've been drawn near by the blood of Jesus Christ. But it is special when brothers and sisters the Lord gather together to worship you, to study you, to sing your praises with one mind and one heart and one voice. And so we are deeply privileged to be here this morning. God, we Lift up again our, our friends, our families, uh, our strangers who are our neighbors now in the Caribbean and Florida, uh, who have now been by uh, Hurricane Irma, many, many without power still, uh, many in desperate conditions. Even as we lift up the same uh, in southeast Texas and Louisiana, uh, where still the aftermath of the party we see other storms approaching and threatening to, to wreck havoc in Puerto Rico and New England. And God, we pray for the safety of those there. We pray for your saints. Today we say that they would be neighborly. Today we reach out and love and support their neighbors and show the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in tangible ways in hard times. We pray, God, for those that we know that you are sending into these areas to clean up, to relieve, to help, to heal. And even those who are preparing to send the next wave, that you would strengthen them, that they might bear witness to light. God, we pray for those uh, among us who are traveling, that many of us travel this evening. We pray that you would be with us as we say And that they would
to it. Funny how desperately we want to witness greatness that we even take these temporary passing things and, and make them enormous. Well, in, in the Gospel of John, and we are in a short series, very short series, on the prologue of John's Gospel, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. And we're breaking that apart. And we're looking here at verses 6 through 8 this morning, and we are introduced to a witness. And we are going to investigate this man, John. It's a strange interlude, and we'll get to that in a moment. And I'm going to hold up, we're going to kind of put everything together at the end, I think. But we're going to look at four things that John, the author, John, listen to that, uh, four things the author of this gospel wants us to see about John the Baptist. We we'll see John's authority, John's identity, John's role, and John's purpose. So, so let's dig into this passage. First of all, uh, the author wants us to see John's authority. Uh, it says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's the first verse of our passage this morning, and, and we're introduced to John. I'll say it again, but just to be absolutely clear, it's not the same John who wrote the book. This is John who is often called the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And the other Gospels written by uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they probably called him John the Baptist in order to distinguish him from John's son of Zebedee. John's son of Zebedee is the author of this book, but he never mentions himself directly. He never mentions himself by name, so there's no concern about being the two Johns confused. So for John's son of Zebedee, John the Baptist is simply John. And we actually know a decent amount about this man from the other Gospels, including his parents, his family, his birth, some of his words and interactions. But John's son of Zebedee isn't interested in most of that background, especially in this prologue, because he wants us to see Jesus. And, and so beyond his name, John, son of Zebedee, the author, wants us get one other very important piece of information. And he tells us that this John was sent from God. Now, obviously, at first blush, that's kind of a big deal. If you can utter a sentence in which you are the subject of the sentence, and the predicate of that sentence includes the phrase, from God, it's saying something pretty important. And if the verbal idea is sending, well, that's a really big deal. But, you know, there's a lot of different types of sending. If you think about it. In the Old Testament, God sent Moses. That's a pretty big deal. But he also sent plagues on Egypt. And Festus, in the New Testament, sent Paul to Caesar for trial. So, we need to know what kind of sending is going on here. And then, fortunately, John makes it clear. Uh, this is not a generic sending. It is apostello, which is the verb form, the word that gives us apostle. Now, John is not called an apostle. But if I can butcher the English a little bit, the gospel says that he was a 
It's a very special type of sending. It's a sending of a person who is given standing to speak on behalf of the one who sent him or her. It's sending with authority. And in order to understand the significance of an apostle, we need to know who was sent, but that's not nearly as important as who does the sending. And in this case, the sending is done by God. When John, son of Zebedee, says that John the Baptist was sent by God, we mean that John the Baptist came on the scene as a messenger bearing the authority of God. A rough modern equivalence to this idea of sending is often made by considering an ambassador. The, the current American ambassador of the United Nations is one named Nikki Haley. And actually, this is all new, this is really cool. Uh, that's not her real full title. I found this out this week. This is great. She is, at least on the trustworthiness of Wikipedia, and I quote. <laughs> Permanent representative of the United States of America to the United Nations with the rank and status of ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary and representative of the United States of America in the Security Council of the United Nations. That is an awesome title. That is incredible. But within that incredible title uh, is this specific subtitle, Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary, which is amazing. Um, and it, here it was on Wikipedia, glowing blue, with a little underline under it. So, of course, it's calling me. I got to click. So I click. Um, and that just takes me to the general article for ambassadors. That was a little disappointing. But, it, but in there, it's this little blurb that stands out ambassadors are diplomats of the highest rank, formally representing the head of state with plenipotentiary powers. In other words, part of the quote, Full authority to represent the government. That's what's meant by plenipotentiary. Full authority to represent the government. So when Kaylee speaks at the United Nations, she is speaking authoritatively for the United States, for its government, and in particular, the current presidential administration. When she speaks with other ambassadors uh, to the United States, uh, or to the United Nations, excuse me, they have the confidence that they are deal that the, when they are dealing with her, it's as good as dealing with the president himself. And in order to maintain that relationship, obviously, Ambassador Keeley must be keenly aware of the government's prerogatives and interests and take care to communicate them accurately and consistently. And that, in effect, is John's role. He is ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary of God. And so when John spoke, he ought to have been taken seriously because he was the mouthpiece of the divine creator of the universe, the one who was in the beginning. Well, the gospel wants us to see, secondly, John's identity. It says, there's two things here. You might think I'm, I'm being pedantic. Uh, because we've already identified the man, man, right? His identity is John. And from the other Gospels, we know that John the baptizer is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
gospel. Witness and light. John came as a witness. And that's important. And it's also surprising. It's surprising because after the first five verses of this opening prologue, we are awaiting a name. But not in this way. So you know nothing about Jesus, and maybe you don't. So you know nothing about the Bible, and you've never picked up the Gospel of John, and maybe you haven't. And John begins, as we looked at last week, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, the men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. Aha, this is, we've got it, this is the Word, right? Whose name was John. Ah, it's John. He came as a witness. He was not the light. He was a witness. He was not the light. John, as John is an ambassador, extraordinary, and plenipotentiary, we're, we're immediately brought, thinking that he must be the one called Word. He must be the one who was with God, the one who was the light of men. But no, just as soon as we think we've identified the Word as John, we're told that John's identity is witness. Witness the light. And to drive the point home, we're told that John was emphatically not the light. We might be tempted to take the light as John's non-identity. In other words, well, that's who John wasn't, not who John was. But let me suggest that rather than saying that John is not the light, uh, that we're very much being told here that John is not the light. In other words, he's been identified positively as the one who happens to not be the light. Maybe I'm being a little bit, maybe I'm pushing things a little bit, I don't, I don't think so. Consider a few verses later, we're presented with an encounter between John and some of the religious leaders of the day. And they asked him for his identity. They asked him in verse 19, Who are you? And John says, I am not the Christ. And, and, and they said, well, who are you, Elijah? He says, I am not. They said, well, are you the prophet? He says, no. Three times he's given a chance to identify himself. And three times he answers in the negative. Who was he then? John says, I am the voice of one crying out from the wilderness to strike the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, you hear? John refuses to be identified with the promised Messiah, whether through the title Christ or through the term prophet. He even refuses to be known as Elijah, although in some ways he was, though perhaps not in the way those religious leaders conceived of Elijah. Rather, he wants to only be recognized as the one calling out to 
to make a way for the Lord. In verse 19, the beginning of verse 19, says that this is John's testimony. It's the same word as witness. This is John's witness. John's witness is as much who he's not as who he is. John came as a witness, and the first, the first record of him as a witness is to make clear that he was not the one that we call the Word. He is not the Messiah. John embraced the fact that though he was an ambassador of God, though he was a prophet, though he was sent to call people to make a way for the Lord, he most certainly was not the Christ. Who he wasn't was as essential to his identity as who he was. Because he could not have been a witness to the Christ, to the light, to the Word. Unless he clearly saw who he wasn't. And then we're going to John's role. And this seems redundant, but bear with me. In, verse, in the second part of, of verse 7 and the, in the second part of verse 8, we are told that John was here to bear witness about the light. That might seem redundant, and it might be a little bit redundant. But the gospel writer flips from the noun witness to the verb, bear witness. And a witness who came to bear witness might seem a little obvious. I mean, obviously, this isn't that what a witness does. Like, I'm the firefighter, but I'm not here to firefight. No, you think a firefighter does. But, and I'm sure a number of you identify yourselves by your profession. Right, right or wrong, that's a different sermon. Our culture typically wants to know two things about a person when they meet them. Number one, what's your name? Number two, what do you do? And by those two things, you start to form an opinion of who someone is. But if you're an engineer, your life isn't defined by engineering. If you're an accountant, your life isn't defined by accounting. Your grade will not be Mary Smith, loving mother, devoted wife, Java programmer. <laughs> That's not what you're going to put on there. Uh, these things you do, they, they are the roles that you play. Your career is a role, but it doesn't sum you up. But John came as a witness to witness. His role was intricately intertwined with his identity, so they were almost inseparable. The entire historical record that we have of John the Baptist is a bearing witness to the light. That's all we know he ever did. We, we write on our gravestones how we hope a person will be remembered. If John had a tomb that we could put a gravestone on, it would not read Loving Father. We don't know anything about whether they're married, uh, whether they have children, or how we felt about them, or how we treated them. It would not be devoted son. We know he was a son. We don't know about his relationship with his parents. We don't know what it was like. It would not be priest, even though he came from a priestly line. Because we have no evidence or record that 
and spent any time serving in that role. His birthday and his death have been lost in history. And so his gravestone would only read, John the Baptizer, he bore witness to the light. John the Baptist's life was so consumed by his role that for all intents and purposes is all we know about his life. In fact, we learn in the Gospel of Luke that even, even in utero, this little baby gives testimony to the light and he, he leaps in his mother's womb when his mother, who happens to be related to Jesus' mother, comes into, into contact with the pregnant Mary. His entire life is given to his role of bearing witness to the light. And so his identity becomes consumed by who, by what he does, so they are inseparable. Fourth, we're introduced to John's purpose, and it is right there at the end of verse 7. It's sandwiched between, it's really the cause of the heart of this passage. It's flanked by these double references. Twice we have John identified, uh, he's a witness, he's not the light. Twice we, we have his uh, uh, role explained to us that he came to bear witness to the light, and then those things flank this middle text. Like it's like a linguistic highlighter over these words that all might believe through him. This clause expresses John's purpose. John's purpose was that all might believe through him. It would be we are all looking for purpose. And many of us spend our entire lives looking for it. We spend enough time looking for it that many of us just give in and try to find satisfaction in the bigger things of this world. We settle in to try to find significance in our careers, our hobbies, our families, our children, our spouses. Many of those are often good things, but that don't satisfy. They're concessions. They're temporary releases. They're opioids of a dying world. And it is dying. And, and with this dying world, our careers will come to an end. Our hobbies will cease. Our families will disappear. Our children will leave us. And even our spouses eventually fade away. Some get lucky, I guess. It's a perverse sort of luck. They die before their careers end, or they die before their families die. They die before their spouses, I guess, one partner 
place a little bit uh, here to sort of spiteful serendipity. John's purpose was not so glamorous or heralded in our world. It doesn't tend toward fat bank accounts. It doesn't tend toward comfortable retirements. It doesn't tend toward celebrity or at least not the type of celebrity that we typically desire. But it was a fitting purpose for someone whose identity was so often more focused on who he wasn't than on who he was. John's purpose is that people would believe through him. John would bear witness to the light, to Jesus, and through his testimony, people would trust in this Jesus. They would trust that Jesus was the Word who was with God in the beginning, and that he was the Word who was God. They would trust that he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, who voluntarily offered his life on the cross. We, we sang this morning, no one takes his life, but he lays it down on behalf of sinners, that those who rebel against him might receive forgiveness, his death being accounted on our accounts. We can trust in him. John bore witness that others would trust that in Jesus was life. And they trust that life in Jesus was the light of men. And notice it says that through him they believed. Not that they believed because of John. They believed through John. Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you can see, it is the Father's drawing that brings about faith. It's not John. If John were a great orator, with powerful skills of persuasion, if he were very handsome, winsome, as to draw people in, if he could cause people to believe in Jesus, then perhaps he would have something about his life purpose that would be satisfying in the eyes of the world, even if in some small way. And you know, there have been, there have been, there will be, there, there are uh, certainly some who win converts with their gifts and their traits. I don't begrudge them their attributes. And the world, from time to time, recognizes their giftings, even if it often rejects their message. But people are not one to the Lord through quite care and slick words. They believe that the Father draws them. And so John doesn't even receive the dignity of having something to his credit. People will believe through him, not because of him. How small purpose that is in the eyes of this world. But John found in this purpose true and lasting joy and satisfaction. A joy and a satisfaction that could not be taken from him. 
It was a joy that was permanent. It was a joy that was eternal. It was not a joy that fades away with the winds of this world. No illness could, could take this joy from him. No accident of history could flip this script. But he had an abiding, lasting joy. And how do I know that? Because he says so. And John, John was called to a witness to prepare people for the Lord coming after him. And he told people to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord coming after him. And then he met Jesus. And then sometime after that, as he continued his ministry, some religious leaders came to him. And they, they were concerned that this Jesus fellow was, was becoming something of a big way. And uh, in, in, in chapter 3, they, they come to him, bringing to them, bringing to John their concerns about his diminishing stature. And, and John says in, uh, in chapter 3, a person cannot eat, receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, or bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him choices breaking the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You must increase, but I must. Maybe you've had the experience of having a great friend get married. And I still generally remember the day my, my friend Chris got married outside of Boston. The, 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 when my friend John uh, got married in Marshall, Illinois. My other friend John getting married in Bloomington, Illinois. And the friend of the bridegroom, the friend loves the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom is overjoyed the honor and the glory that the bridegroom is receiving on that day. To receive a woman as a spouse, to be the, the person honored similar to God, the bride more than the bridegroom anymore. But John's joy was complete. No one could take the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, from him. No matter what ups and downs this life would have, his joy could not be taken from And John, for his part, because of his witness, was thrown in prison by Herod. And eventually beheaded. But John's joy. So now here we have the introduction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this incredibly sublime first five verses of John's gospel, and it catapults us into the heavens, and it gives us this breathtaking view of the eternal word of Jesus.
then suddenly, John. Almost out of nowhere, we get John. And as soon as John appears, he's gone again, not to be spoken of until after the conclusion of this prologue. So why? Why introduce this character, John, here in the prologue, in three very, very short verses? You know, throughout the book, the author, John, son of Zebedee, refuses to name himself, referring to himself only as the disciple whom Jesus loved, or some variation on this. Interesting that John, the son of Zebedee, finds his identity most fully in Jesus. His own personal significance is wrapped up more not with his name or his work, he was a fisherman, his dad's name, Zebedee. He finds his fullest identity as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But as the book draws to a close, this, this John, the author, inserts himself three times, breaking the narrative flow. Three times he breaks the narrative, breaks the story of Jesus, and kind of insert himself and to make a comment and bring himself into the text. Two of those times, he emphasizes that he, the author, is bearing witness to things that he saw and experienced himself as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, who is with Jesus Christ in his life and ministry and death, and he, and he stops the narrative to say that he is bearing witness to the things that he saw and experienced himself, so that his readers might believe in this Jesus. And then in third instance, is still him emphasizing that his witness, his testimony, is true. You see, witness is not a minor point for the author of this book. It's a defining theme of the entire Gospel of John. And he holds out John the Baptist here to get introduction, I think because he wants us to see that John is not just a forerunner of the Messiah. John is a forerunner of true discipleship. John the Baptist is the true disciple. And so even as we're being presented the word who was from all ages, before all creation, and all things being made through him, he is with God and he is God and he is the light and life of men. Even as we're introduced to this character, the author John wants us to see what it looks like when we believe and put faith in and trust this Jesus we become a John. Like John, we are called into discipleship with Jesus. We are called to follow after Jesus. We receive an authority that comes from God. We are now known as children of God. We bear our Father's inheritance and our Father's authority and our Father's name. We may not be apostles, but we've been apostles. We've been sent out into a dead and dying world. And we have been sent out as witnesses. It is our role, a disciple's 
identity is as a witness. And so Jesus can even say uh, in, in, in Acts chapter 1, after he has resurrected from the dead, and, and after the, uh, the disciples are, are longing for what's next, and Jesus says to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. What do you think about that? When you think about the empty earth, and you know, like remote little villages and things like that, where maybe the gospel is important, and all that's true, it's important. But it's amazing you stop to think this is the size, not even my nose, but you stop you think. Nobody knew about this little spot on Lake Erie. None of those 120 disciples knew about this little spot on Lake Erie. This, this was almost beyond the ends of the earth for them. Here was Jesus telling them, you will be my witnesses in Cleveland, Ohio. Every earth Cleveland, Ohio. And there was the ends of the earth for them to go to. And a true disciple's role is to bear witness for life. Like John the Baptist, our greatest identity is wrapped up in our very role so that they're inseparable. There's nothing more meaningful or, or significant or joy-bringing than, than to be in communion with Jesus Christ and bearing witness to who he is in a joy that cannot be taken from us. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're called to be. It's so much so that it becomes our identity. We want to be known as, as successful. We want to be known as, as uh, intelligent. We want to be known as the person with the answers. We want to be known with the, with the person who has the, the, the nicest house to go home to. And we want to be known as the, the person who was responsible and planned for the retirement. And we want to be known as the, as, the, as the family with the best children. We want to be known as uh, you know, the, the person who's got their life all we, we want all these things for the world to identify us as being and having and doing. And, and we forsake the, the one thing, the one identity and role that we are all called to that will give us more and satisfy and last and joy than all of those things, which can be ripped from us in a moment without even a warning. And that is to be a witness to Jesus Christ. And the world won't celebrate you for it. Your family might not celebrate you for it. Your friends might not celebrate you for it. Your spouse might not even celebrate you for it. That's possible. But there will be abiding and lasting joy when we recognize our role
take our authority from God, and we, and it's an authority to bear witness to who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus Christ did, and what he is doing for us, and for his glory's sake. And God desires worshipers. So he's drawing us humans to himself. That's what you are with us. And so John is the true disciple. John is a model. Worship. 